0: Welcome back to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. I'm so excited about this next guest today. You do not have to be a sports fan to find this interesting, guys. Okay, he's a retired NBA champion whose 14-year career included the Golden State Warriors, the Los Angeles Lakers, and the LA Clippers, just to name a few. He's a leading voice on social justice, a proud father, successful business owner, and the host of the podcast, All the Smoke. Please welcome Matt Barnes to this show.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So I mentioned to my ex-husband, Matt is his name, also that uh, I was talking to you today, and um, he is a huge uh, sports fanatic. He knows everything about sports. I know basically nothing about sports, and I asked if he knew who you were, and he's like, "Of course, I know who he is," um, and and he's like, uh, "But Rachel, you know, he's he's really hot-headed," and <laughs> and I said. Uh really, why do you think that is and he 's like, "Oh, you know well it 's really crazy that he 's so hot headed because he 's had it so easy his whole life. I thought that was a really interesting comment, and I said, What do you mean he 's had it so easy he 's like well he 's played for the Lakers and he has a big paycheck and all this stuff and I wonder if you get that a lot. Do people misunderstand your past
1: definitely um you know but i'm I 'm to the point now that you know I just turned forty through yesterday um you know I necessarily don't don't don 't mind people who have an opinion on me that don't know me because everyone's going to have an opinion, um, you know, whether it's warranted or not. Uh, I leave that to them that that, that's not my issue, but you know, I had a very rough childhood. Uh, both my parents were functioning drug addicts. I grew up in abuse, um, violence, drugs, um, bounced around as a child. Um, but luckily I was someone who was able to, you know, turn all those negative things that happened to me in my childhood as. fire to continue to motivate me and keep an edge about me that allowed me to live out my dream and win a championship and now be a father and and do a ton of other stuff that I never thought I'd have the opportunity to do.
0: Exactly. So that's exactly what I wanted to get into because I think it's so impressive who you've become. Um, I wanted to get into your pre-MBA career and talk about your childhood. What was it like growing up um, in a mixed race household?
1: I didn't really have any issues with the mixed race until I moved from the Bay area to Sacramento. Um, my mom being a full Italian, my dad being African-American, it was never an issue when I lived in the Bay because it was very diverse, multicultural. Um, a lot of people who looked like me, um, when we moved to Sacramento because of some street stuff, my dad had got into, um, although we moved to a neighborhood that was similar. Uh, and I, and when I say this, people kind of look at me crazy because I'm half Italian, but, My parents started putting me in all predominantly white schools, 95, 97, 98% white. And I never understood. I'm like, why can't I go to school with my kids in the neighborhood? Or why can't I go to school with my basketball friends? And my parents just weren't having it. They always put me in white schools. And I think they probably thought it was because it was a better education to give me a better opportunity to succeed. So um, I found when we moved to Sacramento and I started getting put in these white schools that that's when the biracial issue kind of started happening and it was the first time i was around predominantly white kids and you know the word nigger started coming up a lot and i wouldn't understand because i'm third grade this time so maybe eight or nine years old why these kids wouldn't let me play kickball wouldn't let me play a wall ball wouldn't let me play four score, wouldn't let me play basketball wouldn't let me play nothing with them ever mm-hmm. ever and you know and it was just it was really frustrating and because it was the color of my skin And then some of them started getting brave enough, like I said, to start actually calling me nigger. So it was my first time about nine years old starting to really, uh, experience racism. And as a nine-year-old, you're heartbroken and and confused because, you know, I never really saw color or understood color. Um, because like I said, where I first grew up, everyone, you know, was similar to my tone and color never came up. We just all play together. Um, but so I would go home and, You know, be disheartened and probably sometimes crying. Obviously, my mom would do the mom thing and kind of shelter me. But my dad's like, no, you have my permission. If they call you nigger, you can fight them. And I'm like, oh, so now I have permission. So um, from there on, again, it wasn't something I was proud of, um, but it was uh, a means to fight ignorance. And I had to face it at a young age. So starting in third grade, I started fighting. Every time someone said that, they would have to pay for it. And that lasted probably third grade, a little bit of fourth grade, and then kids stopped. And, you know, they started accepting me and I excelled in a bunch of different sports. And, you know, to this day, I still have friends from third and fourth grade. And although it didn't start well, I could say 30 plus years later, uh, it's great.
0: Talk to me about what happened at Del Campo High School. There was a mannequin hanging from a noose there. Um, How did that affect you? What happened there?
1: Um, well, my, I was a senior, so I was about three months away from going to UCLA and my sister was a sophomore and there was a kid that just kept harassing her, just kept harassing her. And it kind of started off mild and it continued to get serious. And then it started, he started throwing racial slurs at her. And, you know, I would never be able to see the kid because he just did not never saw him. And then one day he Called her nigger and spit in her hair. And it was right before class got out. So as soon as she got, as soon as class came out, she came and found me because I was done for the day. And she still had another class. You know, I was about to go home. So she and two or three of her girlfriends uh, come up to me, tell me what's going on. I still see the spit in her hair. And this kid just, unfortunately for him, happened to walk by. So, you know, as a big brother, I did what I was supposed to do and then protect her and send a message. And uh, I did that. You know, got taken to the principal's office after that and explained what happened. Again, spit still in my sister's hair. And this man sat in front of me and told me, no, I don't believe you. You know, his dad, a dad's a prominent lawyer in the city. He wasn't racist. And he obviously this kid's over here crying because I just put hands on him. But he's just like, I never said that. And I'm not like that. And, 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 you know, again, I'm a five-star athlete in football and basketball. I have scholarships to every school in the country, you know, and I'm about to literally leave for UCLA. And it's just like, I'm not on bully time. Like, I'm literally protecting my sister. So they didn't see it that way. I get to spend it for a week, probably three or four days under my suspension. The KKK comes and vandalizes my school, burns down bathrooms, swastikas everywhere, die nigger. I hung a mannequin. We had a big oak tree in front of our school, and they hung a mannequin in the oak tree with my football jersey on it that said "Die Nigger," and uh, that changed me. You know, again, I was very proud to be up to that point biracial. I had faced some racism when I first got to Sacramento, and then. You know, nearly nine years later, at at 17 or 18, uh, I faced a huge, obviously, obstacle. And that was for the first time in my life where I realized, although I'm very proud to be Italian and black, that the world saw me as a black man. Um, So not only did they uh, vandalize my school, we later found out that there was a hit on my life. So I had to move uh, to a different neighborhood. And we had around-the-clock security for about a month uh, provided by the NAACP. And it was just a unfortunate situation. And, and, and again, up to that point, I had such a great time in high school. Still one of the greatest times of my life was being in high school. But it really hurt me that after all that hard work I had put in uh, as a student, all the hard work I put in as an athlete, you know, lettering in three different sports and and, and winning league championships and doing all this thing. The one time I really needed the school to understand and hear where I was coming from and have my back, they didn't. Um, So that, again, that was a kind of a a wake up call and and a harsh reality uh, of the world we live in. Um, But again, Mm -hmm. instead of using that as something to cry about or pout about it, just, you know, just added fuel to the fire. And, you know, I just kept that tucked away and, um, you know, went on with my college career.
0: Did they ever catch those kids?
1: It was weird. It, it, it's crazy you ask that question because obviously the, the one kid that I got into it went to school with me, um, but they said he didn't do it. But someone literally just told me that there, it was four guys and three out of four of them are dead now. Uh, two overdoses and something happened to another one and then they don't know what happened with the fourth kid but it was crazy because like someone literally just told me this like a month ago because I obviously had never forgot it but you know I don't let it weigh on my mind but someone literally just told me about a month ago that three out of the four kids that were responsible are are now passed and they don't know where the, the, the fourth guy is.
0: Wow crazy so all right moving on so you ended up going to UCLA after that yeah? And, and what, was, what was next for you there?
1: UCLA was amazing. Uh, it was really my first time kind of out of a small town. You know, I was in Sacramento from 9 to 18. And, you know, there's a small, slower moving town to throwing into Westwood, which Hollywood, you know, ho- you know Hollywood borders our school. So I went from, you know, they call Sacramento a cow town to basically Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. but, it, but it was amazing. Uh, Just the opportunity to go to UCLA with all the tradition and the history. And actually my first year at UCLA was 1998 and there was an NBA lockout. So there was no other basketball being played besides our basketball. So we used to have like Shaq and Kobe and all the LA stars that, you know, movie stars that you would see at a Laker game, they started coming to our game. And I'm like, oh shit, this is what college is like. This is what UCLA is like. So it was an eye-opening experience. It was an amazing Mm -hmm. experience. And again, uh, four years at UCLA was some of the best times of my life. Uh, have friends still to this day. From there that I talked to daily, opened up a lot of doors and, uh, you know, it provided me an opportunity to have a chance to play in the NBA.
0: Right. So you started, let's see, with the Clippers. Was that your first team?
1: Yeah. You know, so I bounced around um, early on. Second round pick who got cut, started in the G League. Uh, played well there, got an opportunity to play for the Clippers and then kind of got on this carousel where I played well enough to stick. But then, you know, my first four years, I wasn't given very many opportunities to actually show what I can do. And, you know, there's so many guys in the NBA, you know, the average career is three and a half years, three, three and a half years. So, you know, I'm coming up on year four and not really getting an opportunity to play and, uh, just hoping for that opportunity. But, in, but at the same time, uh, you know, my brother is an up and coming football star. Football is my first sport. I was the number one football receiver in the country my senior year. Mm-hmm. So I kind of started thinking, all right, well, if this basketball thing doesn't work out. Maybe football does. So this mm-hmm. summer going into my fourth season, I'm doing basketball training in the morning and football training in the evening because not really knowing what was going to happen, what opportunities would present themselves. Uh, my agent at the time had, had uh, found about six or seven NFL teams who were willing to give me an open tryout. So I told him that I wanted to give basketball one last shot, which I had a training camp opportunity coming up. And I said, like, you know, if this training camp opportunity doesn't work, let's try to jump the football. Um, thankfully, that opportunity was with the Golden State Warriors in 2006. and. It's a 15-man roster. They had 17 guarantees already and 20 guys coming to camp. So literally, I was the 21st guy coming to camp. And, um, you know, the coach, let me back up a little bit. So I got called. I was living in Sacramento at the time in the offseason, and a a former UCLA teammate of mine, Baron Davis, said, hey, you know, we're having an open gym um, if you want to come by. So the Bay Area is about an hour and some change from Sacramento. I drove down there, played really well, not knowing the head coach was watching the whole time. So after after we get done playing, head coach comes down, puts his arm around me, like, hey son, you know, how you doing? Like the way you played today. What are you doing this season? I was just like to be honest with you, I don't know. You know, camp is around the corner. I don't really have any offers. He's like, Well, hey, you know, I can't promise you a roster spot, but I promise you if you come and compete like you did today, I'll give you an opportunity. So again, Mm -hmm. so that again there's 15 roster spots, they already have 17 guaranteed contracts, so they already have to cut two guys. And they had three more guys in camp. So I came in camp, played really well, and found my way to a guaranteed roster spot. So that was in the 2006 season. Uh, And although I came in the NBA in 2002, uh, 2006 was when I really felt like I got my first opportunity to show that I can play this league. And, uh, you know, when that opportunity was given, I didn't give it back and ran with it. And from there is really, I felt like, you know, year four, year five was where I felt like, okay, I'm in here now and and, and now I can make some noise. So, you know, after that season, played well and was able to just maintain contracts uh, for the next, I guess, 10 years after that.
0: So then you went from there to the Suns, then to the Magic, then you were with the Lakers. How was that?
1: The opportunity to play with the, the, the franchise. Some people look at it like, you know, hey you know for for instance you know kobe was able to play 20 years with the lakers and mm-hmm. that's you know that's everybody's goal but at the same time i realized early that wasn't going to be my path in this league and i was okay with that so i just took every opportunity as a opportunity understanding not only is it a basketball opportunity but at the same time i'm going to these teams and I'm always playing, I'm always starting, or I'm always the first guy to come out the bench. So it was also business opportunities to start meeting the people who are sitting in the front rows of these games, because those are normally CEOs, business owners, you know, all kinds of different opportunities. So I started thinking then, let me just meet these guys. Let me shake their hand because I was, you know, like your ex-husband thought, you know, I was labeled the bad guy and I was okay with that. Um, but at the same time, I think when I'm able to show people who I really am, they're pleasantly surprised, like, Oh shit. Like, you're not at the, you're not this, you're not that. I'm just like, no, I'm just, no, I came from a rough upbringing, but uh, I have a degree, um, educated and I'm just a competitor. And Mm -hmm. so I was just always kind of surprising people when I would meet them and well, here, give me, you know, take my number down and, you know, come to the offer. So let's, let's go to lunch. And it was just, people really started kind of taking a liking to me. And again, use those opportunities from playing for different teams to meet, Different types of people and in, in, in different types of fields, and uh, you know, just kind of carried on through that through my career. Um, obviously, being a Laker is it was a dream come true. I was a huge Laker fan growing up, and there's an infamous moment, <laughs> kind of in basketball aura, and it was just a 13 year anniversary the other day. I think it was March 7th, 2010, where uh, I got into it with Kobe, and uh, I faked the ball in his face. And Mm -hmm. it went viral and viral and it's still viral 13 years later Um, at the end of that season. So the Lakers go on to the finals. We play the Boston Celtics in the Eastern finals. I'm in Orlando at that time. And we end up losing. So the offseason, the Lakers beat the Celtics in the finals. So that offseason, I'm a free agent. And I thought I was going to stay in Orlando, but then they weren't really offering what I thought I was worth. So I started talking to the Miami Heat. And out of nowhere, I get a call from a number that I don't recognize. And if if you know me, I rarely answer my phone. Even if I see the name on the phone, I'm just not a phone person. I happen to answer this call and it's Kobe. And at first I'm like, yeah, right. Who the fuck is this? He's like, "Nah, it's really me. So he and I, you know, kind of start talking back and going back and forth. And, you know, I was congratulating him on winning the championship. And he asked me what I was doing next year. And I kind of told him, you know, okay, you know, I'm talking to the heat and the magic right now. And he, you know, he's like, what do you think about being a Laker? And I'm like, what do you mean? What do I think? I mean, Lakers, my favorite team would be an honor. Uh, he's just <laughs> like, and he literally, he literally told me, he's like anyone crazy enough to the fuck with me is crazy enough to play with me. I want you to be a Laker. And I was like, shit, I want to be a Laker. And literally four days later, uh, I was a Laker.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's a great story. <laughs> so, um, all right. So after the Lakers, you went on to play again for the Clippers. Uh-huh. And and uh, so talk to me about that for a little bit, because most people know about Donald Sterling and that whole saga. But for people that don't know about that scandal, I'm going to let you fill them in a little bit on that, because they just know about Vistaviano, I think. Um, but um, uh, it, what was it like, first of all, uh, working for Donald?
1: It was interesting. I mean, obviously, Donald had a history of discriminating, discriminating against minorities. Um, you know, he's a big real estate guy out here in LA and just kind of had a history of discrimination.
0: But was he, was he like that with you personally?
1: No, not at all. Like I said, I had, I never had any issues, uh, always respectful. You know, I was always respectful to him when I saw him, I spoke, um, I was actually more kind of friendly with his wife, Shelly. Shelly was very nice and kind and always, you know, stopped me out to come talk to me and ask me how things were going. -hmm. So when I, you know, when I when I signed there, I'm not necessarily thinking about Donald Sterling, and I don't think you know Chris Paul or Blake Griffin or DeAndre or anyone else on our team was necessarily thinking about Donald Sterling. Mm -hmm. I think what we were thinking about is the Clippers have been the doormat of the NBA pretty much for their entire existence. We have a really good team, and we feel like we can change the narrative on this team. Mm -hmm. Uh, We felt like we had a championship type of team, and we definitely did. And we took a lot of pride in trying to again, removed the stigma from the team. You know, the, the Clippers were the doormat of the NBA. And for the first time in their franchise history, we won the Pacific Division title, 50-plus 50, 50 wins, one of the best teams in the league for about a two- or three-year run. Um, and that kind of came boiling to a head, was it 2015, I think, where um, Donald Sterling was caught or was uh, recorded by his um, side chick.
0: So time out. Did you used to see Vista Viano at the games?
1: No one can stand this. I, mean, I don't even like talking bad about people, but just no one liked her. She thought that she owned the Staples Center. She thought that she, you know, she was a part of the organization. She used to walk around and strut like her shit didn't stink. And just no one liked her.
0: They, and they knew she was the mistress
1: everyone. She, he used to sit her next to, he used to sit her courtside of games while he was sitting with his wife. He would just sit her somewhere else. So it, it wasn't a secret. And I'm no one to judge because at the time I wasn't perfect and I haven't been perfect in my relationships. but it was just blatant, wild, outlandish disrespect. And I think she fed on that power too. Like she liked people talking about her and she liked kind of being the center of attention. So I say all that today that kind of came to a boiling head uh, the mm-hmm. first round of the playoffs that year where she recorded him saying some, you know, un- unfriendly and, and racial things about minorities, uh, particularly Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. And that um, she released the tape to TMZ, and we're in the midst of a tough battle against a young Golden State Warriors team. So to put it kind of in context, we end up beating this Warriors team. But that next year is when they went on their dynasty run and they won. championships in the next eight years so this is a young we knew at the time like hey this team is next this is the young steph curry young clay thompson young draymond green they're a young hungry team so this tape is you know launched in the middle of a playoff series and we're like fuck like what are we supposed to do so now everyone's telling us and this is kind of the beginning of social media kind of not just being showing off your money or or what you're doing people are kind of starting to speak out against things particularly athletes so now we have the whole world you know telling us what to do you guys shouldn't play and your owner is racist and you guys are he's treating you guys like slaves and this this and that so now everyone okay. has an opinion on 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 what we should be doing and although we agree, you know we felt that you know obviously what he did was wrong and again mm-hmm. with my past I knew he was wrong, but it didn't really bother me. I'm just like him saying nigger or him saying this or him saying that, like that doesn't bother, like I almost lost my life. You know what I mean? So this is, you know, this, the way people talk or people think, like I was just thinking to myself, like, he's not the only owner that thinks this way. He's just the only one dumb enough to get recorded doing it. So again, yeah. it just kind of puts a strain on our team. You know, some people want to sit out. Some people want to play. Um, if we do sit out, does the as a kind of loss? How long do we sit out? Is he going to be fired? So there's just so much unknown that we just decided to try to play through it. Uh, Fortunately enough, we were able to play through it. We were able to beat the Warriors. But then I just think his dark cloud was looming over our team constantly. So it, it became less about basketball as we continue to win and just more about what was going to happen to Donald Sterling? Like, how does he still have this team? And everyone's outraged. But at the same time, although he was the one that messed up, people are starting to get mad at us because we keep playing. But, but we're trying to tell people like, yo, we're not playing for this man. Like, we're playing for the people in our locker rooms, our family, our friends, our fans who believe in us because we feel like we have a team that can win a championship. So just a lot of other stuff kind of caught up with us. We ended up losing the next round. And I think the NBA was kind of happy about that because, again, the narrative the whole time while we were playing was just a negative narrative of Donald Sterling. And um, obviously Mr. Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, fresh on his job, ended up banding uh, him from the NBA. Um, his wife Shelly pulls some some strings and ends up getting the team sold to Steve Ballmer and none of the rest is, is is history.
0: Yeah. So how do you think things have changed in the NBA in the last decade?
1: From that standpoint, I just think people are using their voice more, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, the whole, you know, young black kid, you know, Trayvon Martin movement with the hoodies. And Mm -hmm. I just think from that point on, and I think the Sterling situation was kind of the beginning of the floodgates of athletes really stepping into their own and using their, not only their voice, but their platform as a call for change, a call for attention. And since then, there's been no going back. You know, again, I think the NBA is kind of at the forefront of 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 social movement, and they do the best they can. I don't, I don't, I don't always think they do the right things in some, but I think their heart is in the right place, trying to figure out how to, as such a multi billion dollar, you know, conglomerate, how do we do what's right, considering that majority of our players are African American. So, Mm -hmm. I always take my hat off to the NBA because they 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 do try, they are progressive. Uh, They're at the front of the line of, uh, of change, and I have a lot of respect for them for that.
0: Speaking of that, you've gotten, you you really use your voice now. Um, you've gotten involved in a lot of political stuff. You, you talk a lot about Black Lives Matter. I mean, talk to me about the things that mean a lot to you right now.
1: The Black Lives Matter movement, I wasn't necessarily with that movement from a standpoint of yes, I think Black Lives Matter, but I think the business behind the Black Lives Matter mantra got a little messy. Mm -hmm. and funds were misappropriated and I hated that it kind of gave a black eye to the movement uh no pun intended because again I I think you know black lives do matter black people's lives do matter but I think you know when the money started pouring in and these people really didn't have no idea what to do with it they started doing some some stuff they shouldn't did with it so I'm to the mantra of you know the movement was great I I, I think the people we are standing up for were great. Um, but I just think, you know, money got to those people's heads and, you know, I, I definitely didn't agree to that side. Um, but from a different standpoint, from just, you know, I, I, I try to use my platform to speak up for those who don't have a platform or those who don't, I don't have a voice. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've been misunderstood my entire life um, about who I am or who I, what I'm about. And um, I'm someone who made it out of circumstances that a lot of other people didn't. And I realized that I'm very fortunate for that. So now that I do have the opportunity and the means, I try to help. I try to give back. I try to motivate. I try to educate. And not to say that I'm perfect because I'm still making mistakes along the way, but I'm continuing to learn and try to better myself every day. Um, You know, I got interested in politics. Um, You know, Kevin Johnson, who was a former NBA player, was a mayor of my hometown of Sacramento. And to me at the time, it wasn't so much about the political side of what he was doing, but I just really saw him making a different in the neighborhood difference in the neighborhoods, uh cleaning the neighborhoods up, you know, providing opportunity for the youth in those neighborhoods. And it really kind of motivated me to think, like damn, if he can do it, why you know, why can't I do it? Um so started shadowing him, um, you know, still in contact with the current mayor, uh, Mr. Steinberg out of Sacramento. And again, I just turned 43 yesterday and I, I gave myself a goal back in my 30s that by the time I turned 50 I wanted to run for some sort of office, whether that be mayor or governor or whatever it may be, just because I think it would be different. It would be refreshing. It's not something that people expect, um, but I know that I can make a difference. So mm-hmm. I failed that to say, I still have a you know, a handful of years. I still got seven years uh, before, you know, that time is up, but uh, I, I do more than anything, whether I end up, you know, taking on that challenge that I, you know, gave myself, 10 years ago or not I just want to continue to show people hope give people opportunities and inspire the youth because I feel like in our communities you have to see it to believe it most of the time these kids look up to who they see and they see guys on the block doing all the things they shouldn't be doing so I always want to be a a a symbol of hope of someone who Made it out of tough circumstances, and uh, to motivate other kids to let them male and female to let them know they can too.
0: Mm-hmm. So, speaking of kids, you have a number of children yourself. You're an amazing father. We'll get to that in a second, but you were very close with your mother, who unfortunately died of cancer. Talk to me about her death and how that affected you.
1: Yeah, my mom was uh, my mom was super mom. You know, my dad was out. Doing what he needed to do, provide for our family. So our mom was everything. Would go without eating to feed us. Make sure we were always clothed, and homework was done and ready for school. Again, my, I grew up. I was born in 1980, and, and if you know anything about the 80s, everyone pretty much did drugs back then, and, and my parents mm-hmm. were no different. But I think you know what I was blessed with was they were able to still function while they were doing that. So we were we were always fed. We were always clean. We always had clothes on our back. We always ate. Our homework was always done. So although you, I can go to school and you would never know what was going on at home, uh, it wasn't always sweet at home. So my mom did her best to try to make uh, ends meet and, and be super mom. And unfortunately she was diagnosed with four cancers, uh, four cancers all in stage four, November 1st, 2007. And she died November 27th, 2007. So within 26 days um, she was diagnosed and she was gone and um, it was tough because obviously her being my best friend and my rock and, and and my confidant and, you know, my drinking buddies at the game, like she used to come to the games and she'd be in the bars with us after the games, taking shots and hanging out and kind of almost a, almost a team mom in the NBA, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Cause that doesn't really happen, but uh, she was just always full of great energy and such a vibe that, you know, losing her so fast was, was difficult and it really, Affected obviously my family hard, but I didn't know how to take it. It was, it was, it was, I don't know. I like, I, as much as she meant to me, I never cried from her death. and, And I don't know why. I don't know if it, if it turned me numb or if it just, it did something to me where I don't know. So it's been, uh, man, it's been. My, yeah my so my mom died, and my twins came almost a year after that, so my twins turned fourteen in November, and it was the fifteen year anniversary this past November of uh my mom being gone and obviously think about her daily uh the pain never goes away. I just tell people you know over time you learn how to manage the pain, I guess, and yeah. uh you know continue to try to you know do right now because now she's always watching you know what I mean yeah. so anytime i'm I'm doing some shit, I'm thinking like ah. I know my mom's watching this, so it kind of, kind of, you know, it keeps me a little bit on point as well. So, you know, anyone who's ever lost a parent, particularly a mom, there's, it's, it's the most devastating thing you can go through.
0: Yeah, I lost my father too, and it was uh, when I was 15, and it was devastating. And and it's interesting you say that because I did not cry um, for a very long time, and I think that uh, maybe a year later, I was taking a shower. And it hit me because I think I was alone, and it was just the most odd place and i out of nowhere, I just started sobbing, and then it stopped, and to this day i just i kind of don't deal with it. do you know what i mean and it's it's very odd, and once in a while something will happen that'll trigger it like a song or something will happen, but you know I really keep it inside of me it's so it's interesting that you say that
1: well, I think it's tough i mean there's no rhyme or reason or any method on how you grieve I think everyone grieves differently you know Mm. my brother and sister you know I saw my mom literally zipped up in a body bag and it was it gives me chills to this day and it's just like there's no way how you you know how to deal with that shit. You know, there's no one yeah. teaches us how to deal with that. So to me, I just think everyone mourns different and I respect, you know, the way everyone decides to mourn, but yeah, we definitely have similar, uh, you know, takes from our situation because obviously they meant so much to us, but for some reason I couldn't, I still 15 years later, I, I have never let that big cry out. So, mm-hmm. um, if, if it's coming, I welcome it. If it's not, <laughs> well.
0: And did your team help you kind of get through that?
1: Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. team was great. Um, the organization was great because at the time, again, I was playing for the Golden State Warriors. So that's an hour and some change from Sacramento. So daily I was driving to see her in the hospital. They let me miss practice, let me just come to games. And then when she finally, you know, when, when unfortunately when she did pass, they were very supportive. They came to the funeral. The entire organization came to the funeral. Um, and really that's where my, my, my co-host and I now for all the smoke, Stephen Jackson, uh, became brothers. Uh, he had Mm -hmm. just got, so he had got traded to our team February of 2007 and we made a historical nba run where we were the eighth seed we beat the number one seed for the first time in nba history in the seven game series um so the very next season the the season starts in november my mom's diagnosed november 1st so i'm just kind of out of it and stephen jackson was the one i mean obviously everyone was very supportive but stephen jackson was the one constantly calling me checking on me bringing me food coming over to smoke with me and watch tv so he was really kind of just my rock so from from there we went from you know competing against each other and becoming teammates to uh, becoming brothers uh, and and the best of friends to this day. Uh, Again, you know, we have an award-winning podcast together now, but that's when he and I's real connection started was when I lost my mom. Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. So now talk to me about fatherhood.
1: Awesome. You know, I had a rough childhood and I I always told myself, and you know, when I would pray that if I ever had the opportunity to be a father, I would be the best dad possible. And uh, I would blessed with the opportunity to have twins off the rip, which was crazy. Mm-hmm. Wasn't necessarily ready for that. Don't think I went from having no kids to two kids right away. And the kid part wasn't necessarily hard. It was just obviously having a partner now, you know, a real partner, you know what I mean? Because at that time, their mom and I were up and down, you know, we were young. She was 22. I think I was 26 or 27. when We got pregnant. I'm in the midst of kind of just starting to break out as an NBA player. And it was just tough. And then all of a sudden, bam, I got two baby boys. Um, So the fatherhood came natural, came easy. Uh, To this day, what I'm most proud of is is being a father, but just learning how to parent and then co-parent when her and I divorce, and then maintaining and understanding, although we're going through our BS that the kids are still the most important thing. And I think Mm -hmm. that's hard for a lot of people now, unfortunately more, you know, there's more blended and broken families than, 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 you know, mom and dad have been married for 30 years type stories. Those, those are rare. Those are rare these days. So, you know, we're like pretty much everyone else where, you know, we have a blended family now. So, uh, the twins are 14 now and, and and amazing. And and I get a chance to coach them and, and see them all the time. And, father them and they're just growing up too damn fast. And then I have a four-year-old who thinks he's 14 as well, has a vocabulary of a 14-year-old, which is not a very good thing (laughs) that I have with my fiance. And then my fiance has three children from a previous marriage. So we have 14-year-old twin boys, 11-year-old daughter, 10-year-old son, eight-year-old son, four-year-old son. So we have, (laughs) we have six kids from the age of of four to 14. So we're so we're the Black Brady's over here, but uh, is it always is it always easy? No. Uh, is it worth it? Absolutely. Uh, does it stress me the fuck out sometimes? Absolutely. But I love it. You know, I mean, and the fact that you know, I remember growing up with my brother and sister and playing with them and fighting with them, and I just know those are some of the fondest memories I cherish. So now that we have six, and there's yelling and fighting and screaming and good times and bad times. I just know it was something, you know, these kids will always remember, uh, you know, as they continue to grow up. So I embrace it. If I need to get away and get into my man cave and lock the door and get some quiet time, you know, my fiance allows me to do that. And, um, yeah, again, fatherhood is the, the, the best, if you can even call it job, best right. job in the world.
0: All right. Talk to me about, um, hybrid TV. You're the CEO of this company. You, you t- tell me what that is.
1: Yeah, so Hybrid TV is just kind of a platform for cannabis. And in all walks of cannabis not just in, and I, obviously I think we've come a long way in the cannabis space, but it's not just, you know, the old Cheech and Chong narrative of getting high every day. It's, you know, cannabis is used in so many different forms in in, in cooking and health and fitness and fashion. So we just wanted to provide or uh, create an opportunity for people who to come and display their content on our platform with no red flags or yellow tape. So we're in the process of, of, of fine tuning, uh, the final tweaks of it and hopefully we'll be launching, um, the platform soon. So I just got to call it like a Netflix Netflix for cannabis people. And again, it won't just be cannabis only. It'll be music. It'll be sports. It'll be culture. It'll be, um, fashion. It'll be cooking. It'll be exercise. It'll be so many different, um, verticals within the cannabis space. So I'm really excited, um, about this project.
0: Okay. And on your podcast, you got, it's all the smoke. You guys are known for smoking pot on your podcast. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes. (laughs) So it didn't start that way. So, um, you know, we, uh, my partner and I just real quick, how it kind of started, we were both retired working for ESPN and Fox and, you know, I still work for ESPN to this day. And that's obviously a Disney company. And although I appreciate the opportunity, um, you know, it's not 100% who I am. I can be that person, I can be in that lane, but I wanted to create something where I felt a little more comfortable, a little bit more laid back, and a little bit more relatable to our people. And I uh, came up with this idea, uh, partnered with Showtime right off the rip. But we know Showtime at the time was just like, you know, we can't smoke weed on TV. I'm just like, well, mm-hmm. shit, our show's called All the Smoke. What the fuck you, mean? <laughs> like, you can't fuck weed on TV. So, um, so the first season we didn't, um, but the first year of existence, we won sports podcast of the year. So they gave us a little bit of leniency. So mm-hmm. we kind of started sneaking it in here and there and, and with certain guests. And I think the first guest we were able to smoke with was Snoop, which is obviously very fitting. Uh, and then from there, we kind of just realized, okay, we can smoke, but we have to smoke with people. It, it's okay. So obviously we have a Steph Curry or a Kevin Durant, their current NBA players, we can't smoke with them. But if yeah. we have like we, we just had DJ quick, the legendary DJ quick is the episode we literally just dropped yesterday. He's a music guy, you know, and he wants to smoke. So we smoke. with him. So we kind of pick and choose now um, who we smoke with. But I think the, the, the show all the smoke and that doesn't necessarily mean physically smoke. And I just we wanted to bring you the heat. We wanted to bring you unfiltered, uh, unscripted, real raw conversations with some of your favorite people. And, um, we've been very fortunate enough to be able to create an atmosphere where we get the best of the best and the biggest of the biggest. And, you know, my goal has always been to humanize these people. Like I'm fortunate enough to know, you know, to know these people, but I want to show, you know, people, uh, you know, for for example, rest in peace to my brother, Kobe, I want to show people the other, I wanted to show him, you know, not the mom, but I want to show him Kobe was the father, the businessman, that side, you know, everyone knows Snoop's a great rapper, but what is Snoop like as a grandfather now? What kind of business stuff is he doing? So on and so forth. So I was just wanted to kind of show our fans the other side of some of their favorite people. And I think we've been very successful um, at doing that. And I'm having a good time doing it.
0: Who was the best interview you think you had?
1: Man, that's such a hard question. Um, I mean, I think, pro- I mean, obviously I'm going to say Kobe because it, it, first of all, it was a great interview. It was supposed to be a two-part interview. And then unfortunately, you know, he passed, mm-hmm. you know, two two weeks after the uh, episode dropped. So Snoop, or excuse me, uh, Kobe was a great episode. Snoop was fun. Uh, Kevin Hart was fun. Jamie Foxx was fun. I mean, you name it; we've had them. I, I, I just think all of them are so unique in their own way. It's kind of hard to pinpoint like that one. But mm-hmm. um, I'm, again, I'm 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 so fortunate to be able to do the things I do in my post career because I wasn't an NBA All Star. I was a role player, and mm-hmm. I think the reason why I succeeded is because I realized that early on. Like, yo, you're not a star. All right, well, be the best role player. Be a star in your roles. Like, I was a star role player, and I think that my realness. Uh, in the game was respected after the game. Um, you know, now in the media space, it's it's so much about disrespecting and, and hot takes and trying to go viral. And I've just never been about that. I feel like if you know enough about a sport, you can have a quality conversation. And, and within that conversation, you'll have some great moments. So I just think my realness from who I've always been has been accepted, or excuse me, accepted well in this mm-hmm. next phase of my life. And I'm able to have an award-winning podcast. I'm able to work for ESPN. I'm able to work for the Sacramento Kings and the Clippers. I'm able to start a whole network uh, for cannabis users. And and there's a lot of other cool stuff I'm doing. And I'm just so thankful to be giving the opportunities that I've been given because sometimes guys that were stars don't even have the opportunities that I've had. So uh, I'd never, you know, never take any of that for granted. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. You guys recently had Will Smith on. I saw the I saw the episode. I thought it was I thought it was great. Obviously, I think a lot of people tuned in because they wanted to see what he said about the slap.
1: It was unfortunate because Will was the, that was my first time meeting Will, and Will, someone when I first started the show. I was like, damn, we need to get someone like Will Smith. And then lo and behold, you know, season three, we were able to get Will Smith. But right from the jump, Will, we shook hands, and you know, he acted like we've known each other forever, which is such a dope energy and environment. And when I tell you, Will explained to a T what he was thinking, what he did after, and how he's been healing, it was unbelievable. But of course, the team didn't want that. It was too real. It was too real for them. You know, it was too real to be to 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 be released. So unfortunately, uh, we only got to show what what everyone saw. But when I tell you, he gave us an in depth encounter, step by step, from what he did from the time that happened. The dot the, the, what he read, where he traveled, who he talked to, who, who he leaned on. It was unbelievable, absolutely Mm. unbelievable. But unfortunately, you know, we were kind of one of his first coming out interviews because it was right before emancipation and his team, his, his village, you know, thought it was a little little too real uh, to be released. So we, I have the unedited version and and, and I got a chance to watch that. And it was just like, uh, it, the whole narrative, the the everything would be, if, if we got to show that, I don't really still think, I mean, obviously Chris Rock just did his special and talked mm-hmm. about it and probably that would have kept the energy going. But if we could have released what Will said when we had it on the show, I think it would have changed the narrative about what's going on right now. Because even after that episode, his team is just like, yo, Will's never opened up like that to anyone. He's never felt so comfortable. He's never spoke so freely thank you guys it was they're like it was almost like therapy for him and we we felt so special and honored for him to even that's will Smith the a-list I don't care what how many people he slaps it's the a-list you know it's will Smith um so we just felt fortunate enough to be able to you know be there in the moment and experience the moment and I guess that conversation was for the moment um but I just wish it was for the world because I think it would really change a lot of people's opinion on what happened
0: yeah it was obvious you guys had some great chemistry for sure yeah Do you read the comments section of social media?
1: I do sometimes. And I have been someone known to fire back at times. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just think, you know, the more and more great opportunities that are coming my way, I realize it's just a test and I have to allow people to have their opinions. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard, especially when they're way off. But at the end of the day, their opinions aren't changing my blessings. They're not changing my day-to-day life. They're not changing the money I make. So I just have to allow people to have the misconceptions or the ideals about me or the way I move and and, and, and come to the realization that, that, that that's their problem, not mine.
0: How do you feel about the private lives of public figures? Do you, um, some people think that everything is fair game? Do you agree about that?
1: It just depends on what situation you put yourself in. And I don't ever try to make myself seem like I'm an A-list celebrity because I'm not, I think probably at the best, I'm a C-list. But I also opened up my world in reality TV. And when I did that um, with my ex-wife back in 2009 or 10, it's never been the same since. Um, And I don't even say it in a bad way, but it's just nothing has been private. Obviously my my divorce was very public. Um, Anyone I dated after that, was very public um but it also opened me up to a whole new side of viewership and people who don't necessarily know anything about sports but i i could still get people to this day coming up to me women oh i remember you from the reality show with you and your wife and i was just Mm -hmm. like oh okay that's the stuff man i I hope you enjoyed it you know what i mean so it wasn't all bad uh it it got me into wanting to create content Uh, obviously not content like that trash but just quality content but again, it just opened me up to a whole new eyes of viewers and more fans. So we live in a world today where nothing is really private. You got to try to keep it private and keep it as sacred as you can. And if it is public, uh, you're going to have to work that much harder. So I don't think there's any secret to, you know, there's no secret recipe. You know, we all know relationships are hard, whether they're public or private. Uh, But when they're public, it's a little harder. So you know, you just have to make sure you're on the same page with your partner and, uh, prioritize, uh, your mental health and your happiness and, and, uh, do the best you can.
0: Okay. And the last thing I wanted to mention was athletes versus cancer, your organization that you created for your mom. Will you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. I started that organization the year after she passed and, you know, I just want, didn't want anyone to go through what we had to go through. So in the past we've done, um, you know, health clinics, we've, provided information we paid for funerals medication hospice you name it just anything kind of related to cancer um it's kind of sat dormant for the last three years because i didn't really have a, a solid direction but my team and i've been putting something together so we want to kind of start a, a scholarship program for kids who beat cancer and want to move on to college so i'm in the in, in, in the midst of developing that platform right now and um you know hopefully we'll be able to you know do some good with that.
0: Okay, great. And I think you have an event coming up, right? Um, Wednesday, June 28th. Um, you're going to be hosting a celebrity golf tournament at Pelican Hills Country Club. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So I teamed up with um, Boxing Wags, uh, Deontay Wilder's wife, the former heavyweight champion, um, Telly. They do an annual golf tournament. I went to it the first year. Um, I used to go do a golf tournament with my event. Um, so I just asked, you know, do you guys want to team up? and we've been able to team up so right now we're just kind of getting the dirty work trying to get sponsors trying to get people you know kind of the grind side of the event but uh, i'm excited about the event i have no doubt that it will be a successful event and it will be for a great cause so people be looking out if you see this and you're in the california la area i'll be posting information on it shortly and we would love to have you
0: great awesome thank you so much matt i so appreciate everything that you've given me today so I wish you the best of luck in everything you do.
1: Thank you for having me. And uh, tell your ex not to judge books by their covers until he opens and reads them. All right, guys, thanks for having me.
0: you for listening to The Misunderstood Podcast with host Rachel Yucatel, executive producer Kelly Brink. If you have an episode suggestion or would like to reach out for collaboration and sponsorship opportunities, email us at infomisunderstoodpodcast at gmail.com. That's Info Misunderstood Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Be sure to like and subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review because it helps the show so much. Watch full videos of each and every episode of Misunderstood on YouTube at Misunderstood Podcast. See you next time.